Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strink. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Computational pathology represents the intersection of pathology and computer science, and this area depends heavily on machine learning. My guest today is Dr. Heather Couture. Dr. Couture is a computer scientist specializing in image analysis and machine learning as it applies to pathology. Today, we're going to talk about her educational background. We'll talk about the work she did in predicting tumor biomarkers in breast cancer, and then we'll talk about her work with Pixel Scientia. All right, here's Dr. Heather Couture. You have a bachelor's degree in computer science, and I'd kind of like to hear the story behind that. So how did you become interested in that field? Like what, what inspired you to study computer science? I got interested in it in high school, so I was reasonably good at math from you know, middle school onward. Um, and the logic part of that, of course, carries over to computer science. I took my first programming course in grade 10, I think. So, you know, the the interest certainly picked up from there. And I followed it up with a, a summer program. Uh, I think it was the summer after grade 11 at the University of Toronto. They did a three-week three uh, program called Computing Insights. Uh, that taught high school students much more in-depth knowledge about about um, computer science than is typical on the, for a um, high school program. So, you know, that's, um, they, that made me sure that uh, that was the field I wanted to go into. Okay. Um, so, for, you know, from there, I knew that I wanted to apply to a computer science undergrad program, um, which led me to the University of Waterloo. And I, my interest in computer science has never been about the theory part of it. It's always been about the application. What can I develop software to do? What important problems can I solve with it? And so, you know, trying to figure out through through the next few years of uh, my undergrad career, you know, what what to apply, you know, the computer computing knowledge that I was developing to. Okay, I see. And this eventually led you to computer vision. Is that right? It did. I did a, an internship um, after my second year of undergrad for a machine vision company. And so a, a large component of that was analysis of Im images. In this case, it was images from a manufacturing line and detecting um, you know, defects and uh, manufacturing uh, failures and things like that. But that introduced me to the, you know, the field of image analysis um, and using computing to do that. So I, once I got finished the internship and um, got back to the University of Waterloo, I discovered they had a course on pattern recognition and also a course on computer vision. It was a, it was a grad course, but they let me take it as an undergrad. So from that, I knew that computer vision was my thing. I could use my computing knowledge to analyze images um, and you know make an interesting career of that. Okay, were you you were you said you worked in like manufacturing? Was there any connection to pathology at that time? Not at that point, no. Can you tell me about, then you went into a master's degree in robotics, which that seems kind of like a natural progression from computer vision to robotics. Can you tell me about the work you did there? Yeah, so in applying to master's programs, I was just looking for computer vision. And at Carnegie Mellon, where I did my, my master's, um, the computer vision courses and uh, the professors working in that area were in the robotics department. So they were working on all different areas of robotics. And my, my advisor um, was working on autonomous robots, so technology that could be used in a future Mars rover, for example, to help it explore autonomously. 
So my work with him um, while I was in that program was to study images, some of them from the lab, some of them actually from rovers on Mars, and try to detect and segment out rocks and um, study their their shape and their texture and automatically classify them. So developing the algorithms for all of this to do, you know, to make predictions about the characteristics of these rocks that could be employed in, in uh, on Mars rovers in the future. And then I followed that up with an internship at the at the Mars Space Flight Facility at Arizona State University um, that my, my advisor had connected me with to study rocks in craters and satellite images. So huge gigapixel images um, from satellites orbiting Mars and trying to automate the analysis of these smaller structures within them. Okay, wait a minute. This is a little bit off topic, but you, so you were studying images of rocks from a different planet? Yeah. From Mars? Yeah. We, we had um, data sets collected in the lab that were, you know, not from Mars, but we also had imagery from the, the Mars rovers that NASA publishes um, archives of. Wow. So we were able to do some analysis on that. Wow, that's incredible. It is. Yeah. It was very cool projects to work on. I bet. Okay, so your PhD, then you went back into computer science. Yeah, I, I worked for five years first um, because okay. I in, initially I had no intention of a research career. I, I wanted to apply my knowledge. I had no interest in a PhD, but after working for a while, um, I decided that I wanted more in-depth knowledge. So that you know, that's where I did go back for a PhD in computer science. And at that point, again, computer science is my thing, but it's about the application of it. So I was looking for an interesting area to apply it to. And at the University of North Carolina, where I did my PhD, they have a really strong medical imaging program. And so it's the analysis of medical images was the application area that I chose there. Yeah, they do a lot of radiology images. Um, it's, uh, uh, the, you know, the, applying AI to that has been um, has a much stronger past than on the pathology side. Yeah. But to me, the pathology images are a lot more like the satellite and images of Mars that I was previously looking at. They're huge gigapixel images with you know, fine detailed structures with them in them. We saw rocks and craters in, in my mind are not all that different from cells and nuclei. Of course, the pathologists are much different, but to the algorithms that I develop, they're actually quite similar. And so that's how I landed in, in the pathology area. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I never made that correlation between those, those two types of images, but it makes sense. Yes, similar challenges, totally different objects within them and totally different expertise for those who understand the contents of those images. But for someone mm -hmm. developing algorithms, you know, a lot of the challenges are, are similar and a lot of the solutions are similar. Okay. So you had to, like, you didn't have any prior exposure to pathology or any or medical imaging at all, right? No, not at that point, no. All right. So what was it like then kind of learning the you know, the terminology and, and things like that? It took time. You know, in the beginning, you go into a meeting with, you know, my advisor and some of his collaborators across st statistics and genetics and pathology and so on, and, you know, not understanding the, the medical terminology. But over the course of a few years, I picked it up on the side so that I could 
have an intelligent conversation with a pathologist. I think for me, that just took time and exposure, mm-hmm. you know, both talking to those people, reading the literature, because, you know, even some of the pathology focused papers I read now related to AI and machine learning, there are aspects of it that I don't understand, but I can pick through it, figure out what's important to me and learn something new about pathology each time. Okay. So it's just been a, a slow process over years. Sure. I mean, I can understand that in, in researching, you know, the work that you're doing and just machine learning and AI in general. I mean, I'm kind of coming from the opposite direction and it's, yeah, it's a completely different language and I'm trying, I've been sort of picking up pieces as I've been going along. So it's, it's similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. I want to talk quite a bit about the, the work you did for your, your dissertation. Mm-hmm. Because this was in predicting tumor biomarkers in breast cancer, which I found very interesting. So first of all, why why did you choose to study breast cancer? Um, It wasn't a conscious choice for me. When I joined the research group, they were studying melanoma. You know, they had a a data set and a a study that was ongoing on that. Once that completed, my advisor and the other collaborators involved were looking for data. So the the biggest challenge in, in developing machine learning algorithms for pathology is getting the appropriate data sets. So we just followed the data. Um, They found um, some breast cancer collaborators on the other side of campus who had some data sets that we could work with. So the the Carolina breast cancer study data set um, that they had became the easiest way for us to develop the algorithms for pathology. Now, can we go through kind of the process of of doing this work and, and developing the algorithms? Sure. Yeah, for the uh, the data set that we had, um, the Carolina Breast Cancer Study, we had it was a tissue microarray data set. So we had core images, um, you know, four cores per patient, and I think it was about fifteen hundred patients that we were working with at that point. We had gene expression data to go along with it. Um, and from that genomic subtype, we had grade information the pathologist had had assigned um, histologic subtype. Um, ductal versus lobular in particular. Um, so we we had the data and a case of developing the algorithms. And initially, when we started this project, deep learning, you know, deep deep learning came on the scene scene in uh, 2012. But the toolkits for it weren't available until a few years later, probably around 2015. So when we started on this project, we weren't we weren't using deep learning because there wasn't any easy way to do it outside of the few research labs around the country that were. Um, so we, you know, initially tried traditional um, machine learning techniques. So in in you know in that, in that era, that would have been segmenting out individual cells and nuclei, characterizing their their shape, their texture, the the intensity of the stain within them, different things like that, and creating relatively simple machine learning classifiers to try to predict properties about these images. And when we tried that on uh, melanoma previously for predicting mutations, we we weren't able to do it with those techniques. But then heading into breast cancer, a larger data set, and then deep learning coming on the scene. So we, uh, as the toolkits for that became available, we changed our algorithms to be able to use the new deep learning style algorithms. And from that, we were then able to predict things, uh, you know, more complicated properties. So we, you know, apply that to these core images to extract a set of features. 
you know, train a classifier to predict, for example, low versus high grade um, estrogen receptor positive versus negative mm -hmm. you know, for genomic subtypes, um, basal versus luminal A or, you know, basal versus non-basal, depending how we were setting up the classifier for histologic subtype, you know, ductal and lobular were the two most prevalent ones in the data set. So we're trying to predict, you know, just a, a binary decision on, on those directly from the core images. Was it just on like the breast core tissue or did you do like lymph nodes or metastatic sites, things like that? No, we, we just had the core images in this case. Okay. Now I'm, I'm interested in well, a couple of things about this. First of all, the, the ductal versus lobular aspect of it. And I think from what I was reading, the, pre the prediction percentage of accurate pre prediction was pretty high for that, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Um, I know one of the challenges with ductal versus lobular, it was a very imbalanced um, situation. So it was something like a very high percentage of the cases we had were ductal and very few were lobular, which made it challenging and also would bias the accuracy results. So you'd have to look at sensitivity and specificity to okay. to really be sure that one was doing well. But yeah, you know, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. But uh -huh. and then the other thing was predicting the ER status. Mm -hmm. Okay, can you can you talk about that? Because I didn't know you could do that off of just an image. N neither did we when we started. Um, you know, that was one of the goals of this project to see if we could predict, first of all, things that pathologists assesses visually from these images, so things like the grade and the histologic subtype, but then going further into ER status and genomic subtype, you know, things that pathologists realize on other analyses like the IHC staining for ER or um, gene expression for genomic subtype. So in, in the beginning, it was an experiment to see if we could use the same algorithms that could predict grade to see if they could al also predict these other other um, more complicated things from, from an algorithmic standpoint, because we didn't know what features the the classifier was drawing on as, in those images. But it turned out there is some kind of abstract or complex or subtle properties of the tissue that does enable the algorithms to predict ER status and genomic subtype, at least with, with some accuracy. While you were doing this project, were you kind of sharing your data with the pathologist to get their feedback on, on that kind of thing? Or is that did that not happen? Um, it happened periodically throughout the project. So Pathologists might not have been present at every meeting, but a, a mm -hmm. number of them along the way, you know, to show them what kind of results we were getting and to be sure that the things that we were trying to predict were even clinically relevant. Because if we, as computer scientists, you know, came up with a great classifier to do X and X was not at all important in the clinical world, then that uh, would be very useful. So okay. we, we, we had a lot of discussions along the way. Okay. Did they have anything to say about the predicting the ER status? That one in particular, I, I don't remember. Okay. You know, in the beginning, none of us knew whether we could pr predict ER or genomic subtype. You know, it might have been a surprise to everyone in the end. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. You know, the reason this kind of thing is, is so interesting to me is that the, the implications of it as far as like time savings and, and cost savings of not having to do, you know, extra extra stains and the time that it takes to do that and the, and the money for the supplies and all of those things. 
you know, especially with with ER status and even, you know, lobular versus ductal. I mean, there's some stains sometimes you have to do to determine that. So I'm curious if this kind of if, if you think this kind of technology could be well, actually, could could it be used on the on the lymph nodes like I mentioned earlier? And then could it be also used on, on different types of cancer with with modifications? Yeah, lymph nodes specifically, I, I don't know. For other types of cancer, definitely yes. Um, we, we published our work in 2018. In the past three years, there's been, I want to say, two or three dozen different papers mm-hmm. from different research groups all over the world showing that you can predict X from Y type of cancer. You know, So for all, many different types of cancer, they've been able to predict, you know, different types of receptors, statuses, um, different protein markers, mutations, chromosomal instability, you know, a number of things that as non-pathologists, I don't even know what they are. <laughs> okay. um, you, know, you, you know, even presence or absence of a virus for um, HPV and Epstein-Barr. Oh, you know, wow. there, there's been a, you know an exploding area of research re- related to this for all the different types of cancer over the last three years. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to link in the show notes to, to your paper on this, and as well as some of the others that you that you just mentioned, because these are interesting things. I think everybody should should read them. All right, I want to move on to the company that you founded in 2012, which is called Pixel Scientia. Yeah. Okay, and this and you specialize in machine learning and image recognition. So, so tell me about this company. Why was, why was it the right time to start uh, a company for you? So I originally started it while I was doing my PhD. So I, I was doing some contract work on the side um, while I was in school, you know, a day a week on different projects. Um, so that, that's what I initially started it for. Um, and then I put the work on hold for the latter part of my degree because I had young kids in the house and you know, needed to cut back on my responsibilities. So once I did graduate, I came back to this company full time. At that point, I didn't have any clients because I'd been busy working on my PhD. So I had to build up a new client base um, and also kind of pivot my focus from delivering, you know, a complete machine learning solution for a project to focusing more on helping other teams develop their solution. So I, I work with R&D teams who are looking to bring in the latest research to advance their, their algorithms applied to pathology images. You know, the, the re, this research area is advancing so rapidly that it's going to be hard for them to figure out which new algorithms to apply, you know, which, which new techniques to, to um, implement to solve the problems they're having. So I try to stay at the forefront of this research to help guide them and also sometimes help with implementation. Um, to advance their their algorithms and to get them, you know, into the the products and services that the, these companies are developing. Is it hard to convince people that that they need this kind of technology, or you know, with with digital pathology becoming so popular now, is it more something that they're familiar with and they're just trying to keep up? Um, I think probably both are true. The client base that I work with are already on board with machine learning. They might be experimenting with it a little bit. They might know they want to use it, but haven't done anything yet. Or they might already be quite advanced down that line, but are still encountering challenges. So there's definitely the the other subset that you talked about that aren't on board yet. They're they're just you know not not my current client base. 
Um, you know, I tend to work with companies who already, uh, you know, have have a clear decision that they're going to be in the machine learning AI world um, and just want to learn how to do it better. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Heather Couture. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the US and the Royal College of Pathologists in the UK. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the Conf Lab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ConfLab expert. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Heather Couture on the People of Pathology podcast. I want to talk about a couple, because I've read several of the papers that you've either written or some, you, you post them on LinkedIn as well uh, from other people. And there's a few concepts that I thought would be interesting to talk about a little bit. Uh, so the first one, and this is something you wrote about recently, is called transfer learning. Uh, can, mm-hmm. you, can you tell me about that? What, what is that? And then how does that apply to pathology? So it's a technique that is used a lot with deep deep learning today, and especially when the data set you're trying to train on is relatively small. So you want to train a deep learning model, um, but you don't have enough images and associated labels to really train it from scratch. So you take another deep learning model that's been trained on a different data set, and it doesn't even need to be images of the same type. It could be a natural image data set, you know, an image uh, data set of photographs. That's that's the most common benchmark data set that, that's been used in computer vision. So it's often used for transfer learning, even to histology, where the images have a drastically different appearance. So you use that to initialize your model and then further, further train it on, on your choice of data set. And the reason that works is because deep learning consists of a hierarchy of layers. So the lower layers capture smaller structures, so things like texture. You know, the the middle layers capture somewhat more complex properties of of the images, and the higher layers are much more discriminative. So the the higher layers don't transfer as well to a a new task, but the lower layers do transfer very well. And it's some kind of middle ground that gives you both some discriminability and so the transferability when you move it to a new data set. So you take that that model that you've trained on another data set, you you tune it further on yours. And you know, instead of the, the data set of photographs I mentioned, if you have a model that's been trained on a different histology data set, maybe a different task, even a different tissue type, that's likely gonna be even better than choosing the, the um, image photograph data set. So if you transfer that from the other histology da- data set to yours and fine tune that, that will give you an even better solution. And it may, may have been trained on something, to- a totally different task. You know, Maybe you're trying to predict grade and it was trained to predict um, you know, presence or absence of tumor, things like that. Um, or it could be even a totally different task where you're trying to predict um, molecular biomarkers like we did in our work. So we use transfer learning there. 
And in that case, we did use uh, a network that had been trained on the image photograph data set and then fine-tuned it for, for our application. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it seems very surprising that when it comes to pathology images, there isn't a lot of, of data sets available for those, because which, I mean, there are so many images, but I think what... I think from what I was reading, one of the problems is they're not labeled. Is that, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. Labeling is definitely one, one of the challenges, you know, the most successful deep learning algorithms right now are based on supervised learning where you have an image and an associated label. Um, and, and I don't mean at the whole slide level, I mean, for say, a, you know, a smaller patch with the, in the image and that has a label in the absence of that, you know, there definitely are solutions to handle that. And that, that's a lot, a lot of what I work on with, with clients and, and in, my, in my research. But if you, you know, not having those initial labels makes it much more challenging to train the network. Um, so th three years ago, you're, well, three years ago was when we published our work. But even going back four or five years ago, the, there weren't as many public histology data sets with labels. There definitely weren't pre-trained models that others had published. So it was much more challenging to find a good network to train from. You know, technology has advanced and a few years later, and um, there's a lot more open research out there, both code bases and models and data sets. And so that challenge isn't as much present, but still transfer learning is, is, is used in certainly most applications in histology for deep learning, whether it's training transferring from a generic image data set or from another histology data set. It's, it's there for most projects. I was just wondering like how much farther along we could be in this area. If, you know, these images had been labeled for, you know, out of the last three or five years, even before that, just, you know, how much farther this technology would be in, in uh, histology and pathology. Yeah, and get, get, getting those labels will definitely further it along. You know, getting access to the imagery is a challenge in some cases too. Mm -hmm. You know, depending on you know what data sets you have access to, and you know, keeping data anonymous and, and challenges like that for medical data sets. So, it, medical applications, it is much more challenging to get to get the data and the labels than it is for generic computer vision data sets. So, you know. If you can train your mo your model on on photographs, you know there's tons of data out there, and that's much easier to get it labeled to. For specific medical applications, th there will always be some challenges present. Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Now another concept, and I think this kind of uh, ties in with labeling. It's uh, tissue segmentation. Can you can you explain what that is? So t tissue segmentation is delineating a pixel level boundary around different structures in your image. So it could be you know, separating tumor from non-tumor. It could be separating tumor from adjacent stroma and from lymphocytes, from other other types of tissue present in the image, and, and also separating it from the, the, you know, the background white slide. So there's deep learning al algorithms that given pixel level annotations can predict a pixel level segmentation result. And the, the reason, I guess, tissue segmentation is important is going to depend on your application, what, what type of solution you're, you're trying to develop. If you are trying to you know, identify where the tumor is to help a pathologist focus in on just that area, that, that's certainly one application. 
Another is prognostics, so pre predicting the outcome from a whole slide image. You might want your algorithm to focus on only the tumor part of it and ignore the rest. Or you might want your algorithm to focus on the tumor and the adjacent stroma and perhaps even capture a different set of features from each of those so that you can distinguish which portion of, of the slide is giving you your important results. And there's actually been a few different papers recently have, show, have shown that properties of the tumor adjacent stroma were more important in predicting patient outcomes than the properties of the tumor itself. So tissue segmentation definitely came into play there. Okay, I see. Uh, that sounds like that would be a lot of work. Is that something that has to be done manually or the, the computer learns how to do that over time, right? Well, the, the initial data set ha, you know, has to be um, manually labeled. And then okay. from that, you can train a segmentation model to be able to predict those annotations on, on other slides. The in, initial annotations, you know, labeling at the pixel level, like you know, drawing a boundary, you know, drawing, drawing a curve along the, the boundary between two different tissue types, that, that definitely does take work. And so segmentation, annotated segmentation data sets for histology are even harder to come by than you know, data sets that are annotated at the image patch level. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's a, I guess it's a fear among some in pathology that these digital and computational methods uh, could replace pathologists and, you know, other, other roles as well. But in in reading the work that you're doing, it seems like there's always a need for a, a human to be doing some of the work. Like it's computer, the computer is assisting the pathologist and not replacing them. Definitely. Okay. Um, yeah, that's definitely my perspective on it. I, you know, the best strategy is to use the strengths of the, the AI and the strengths of the, of the pathologists together. They can be employed in, um, you know, tackling different tasks um, in analyzing tissue. The, you know, the AI might direct a pathologist to the mo most important areas of the slide for more careful review, or the AI could assist with more detailed analyses like um, counting mitosis, or could produce complementary information like screening for the molecular properties that we talked about earlier, like mutations and receptor status. But even in that setting, a pathologist may need to learn to interpret the results of the AI. So there might be some training involved there. But if the goal is to improve patient care and, and reduce costs, then a pathologist with AI will be more powerful than a pathologist without AI, I think is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Okay, I agree with that. I, I read somewhere somebody said it should be called augmented intelligence instead of artificial intelligence. Yeah, in, in, in this setting, yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the last thing I want, I want to talk about is your Pathology ML Insights newsletter. And because this is a, I think it's what, a bi-weekly newsletter that you do? Yeah. Um, okay. So when, when did you start this and, and why? I started this in March of this year to bring the latest machine learning and computer vision research to pathology. So I try to talk about the latest challenges and in, um, in the field and possible solutions to you know these uh, you know number of um, people from working in industry on on my on my list. There's also a number of grad students and academics. So I'm you know covering 
the broad spectrum there. But anybody who's trying to use the latest rapidly advancing research and um, trying to solve problems with it. So I'm, you know, trying to expose them to the uh, the latest papers and topics. Um, you know, I talk about different things like adapting to variations in staining, um, predicting outcomes from whole slide images, transfer learning that we talked about, um, self-supervised learning, which is, a, you know, another technique. Mm -hmm. um, Multimodal models incorporate imaging and genomics together, model interpretability, kind of, you know, anything that is interesting and relevant in the latest research. Okay, so it's, this isn't all necessarily your work. It's from, any, in, from anybody, really. Right, de definitely, because, you know, I've been out of academia for, for two and a half years now. So mm -hmm. most of the research coming out is, is uh, from a variety of research groups around the world. Okay, and so how much time do you spend on on putting this newsletter together that seems like that would be a lot of work well i also post on linkedin regularly regularly mm -hmm. so i post a, a few days a week about some papers that i've read so i i'm continually reading making notes on them writing up you know the, the things that i find interesting sharing it with the community and so each of these newsletters tends to be a, a topic that brings together a few of those papers that I've already read and posted about. And so, you know, you know, bringing it together into a cohesive topic, maybe to show a, a you know, a new solution that three different papers have used or to show three different ways that um, different papers have solved a problem to, you know, kind of compare and contrast different things and, you know, bring, bring new, bring new ideas to the community. Okay. I see. Do you ever get any feedback on the newsletter? Like people write back and they say that this was really interesting or I completely disagree with this. And this is why does that kind of stuff happen? Um, I, I've definitely gotten feedback from some of my current clients that they're, they're interested in, you know, in some of the regular meetings I have with them, they want to talk about something that I talked about in uh, the previous week's newsletter. Oh, okay. um, so that, that's definitely been coming up. Okay. That's interesting. That I, I guess that's that's gotta feel good to know, first of all, that they're reading it and then that they have uh like that that sparks their interest. Yeah, no, definitely. I you know that, that that's that's the hope. I'm uh, hoping that the, the things that I share will start new conversations and you know, new new investigations and new possible solutions for for all you know, all the companies and the um academic community who are um working in these areas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, all right. I'll, I will also include a link in the show notes to the newsletter so people can subscribe to that. Like I said, I do. And it's it's been very educational. Some of it I don't understand just yet, but I'm, I'm slowly getting there. <laughs> well, my, my goal is to communicate it to a broad audience. So maybe that's still a work in progress. But, you know, I'm trying to sh share the knowledge, um, you know, where it needs to go. Yep. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, uh, all right. This has been, this has been really interesting. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking about your work and the, your, your, your things you're doing with your company and discussing some of the machine learning concepts. So uh, Dr. Heather Couture, thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me. Great big thanks to Dr. Couture. Now I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Kelsey Dawes. Let's talk about molecular medicine a little bit. If you had to explain to somebody what this means, how, how would you explain it? Well, see, molecular medicine is simply the science of medicine. 
Um, so it's really attempting to really like elucidate the disease pathogenesis at the molecular or the physiological levels. And so um, most like molecular medicine research really aims to improve like the core foundations of medicine. So like diagnostics, prognostics, treatments and prevention. Um, so instead of like learning the clinical workup of when a patient comes in with angina, um, instead we're really studying the molecular changes that happen during a myocardial infarction, for example, um, and how we can improve the patient outcomes for that particular disease, if that makes sense. Okay. So it, it seems like molecular medicine then kind of involves different areas of medicine, not only pathology and lab medicine, but also it seems like surgery, radiology, even oncology and things like that. Is that, does that sound right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, um, Several different researchers, like in in my program, they're in oncology or even just genetics or psychiatry, and you know I mean like it's it's vast and very inter um, involves many different departments. Yep, absolutely, and that's okay. the amazing thing about it. You can hear more from Kelsey Dawes in episode forty three. So as I'm learning more about machine learning and AI, I'm realizing that not only do I have much more to learn, but also just how these technologies can be applied to other areas, like we heard today with the breast cancer biomarkers. And I think these are going to be very useful tools in the not-too-distant future. So if you want to learn more about machine learning, I highly recommend you sign up for Dr. Couture's newsletter. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, as well as links to everything else we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter, at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if these topics today interest you and you know someone else who might be interested as well, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link to Health Podcast Network in the show notes if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.